Welcome back to Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts. We are your hosts, Eric Hart and Ashley Flowers. And today we are joined with the amazing Ross McDonald. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, for those who don't know, uh, Ross McDonald has been making uh, books, newspapers, and all manner of paper props for film, television, and now theater since about the uh, early 1990s, I think. That's right. Yeah. 1993. A quick rundown of some of the productions he has built props for uh, films such as Zombieland, Double Tap, Hateful Eight, John Wick, One and Three, National Treasure Two, Book of Eli, Silver Linings Playbook, Joy, and television shows such as Boardwalk Empire, The Nick, Madam Secretary, Parks and Rec, and Bones. Um, and there's many, many more <laughs> once you check out his website. Yes. We're thrilled to have you on, Ross. Yes. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to talk to you. So let's chat a little bit about some of the um, your most recent work that you've been doing. Um, I actually worked last summer uh, for about seven, eight months on a show that's airing right now, uh, HBO's Plot Against America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a, a lot of print for that, newspapers, magazines. Uh, there's stamp albums and stamps that play a fairly big part. Um, just a lot of, you know, paper. There was a, there's a ton of graphics in that show. Uh, most of the work was done by the graphics department, which was headed up by Eric Rosenberg, who's, who's great. Um, and they farmed out a lot of the sort of more mundane stuff and also the magazines and newspapers uh, to me. Um, and that's um, 1930s. It's 1940. Starts 1940s. off in 1940. Uh, America, it's based on a Philip Roth book. America hadn't entered the war uh, yet in 1940. Mm -hmm. um, they don't officially enter the war until after Pearl Harbor, which is uh, early December 1941. Uh, in the Philip Roth book and in the show, there's an alternate timeline that begins uh, when, when um, Charles Lindbergh wins the presidential election. And Charles Lindbergh was a famous sort of Nazi sympathizer and, all, you know, hugely popular. He was a rock star in that time. Yeah. Um, and because he's anti-war and, you know, sympathizes with the Nazis, America takes a very different course uh, mm -hmm. after he's elected. So uh, while it's based in reality and... A part of the show takes place, you know, in, in real time in 1940 and 1941. Uh, a lot of what happens after Lindbergh gets elected is is fictional. Ah, okay. Right. Yeah. It starts sort of deviating away from our timeline. Right. So there were, I was still, you know, in the early episodes, I was producing newspapers and magazines that had, you know, real headlines based on reality. Well, and leading up to the election, also the the headlines and the photos become fictional. We, we have our actors playing Lindbergh and, and different uh, real characters um, appearing in the newspapers. So it was a combination of recreate actual real things and then make up fictional things that look like the real thing. So it's kind right. of a fun, fun mix. Yeah. And when you're doing a television show like that, are you kind of uh, working as they're making the episodes? Like, they just keep calling you up like next week we're going to need this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like that on uh, 
Boardwalk Empire too. Uh, at any given time on Boardwalk Empire, you're working on three different episodes. So you'd be working on, you'd be reading script pages for an episode that you were going to be, they were going to start shooting in a, maybe a couple of weeks. Then you were producing stuff for an episode that they were actually in the process of shooting. And then you were also occasionally doing uh, props for what they call cleanup, which is sort of shooting extra scenes or reshooting scenes for the previous episode. So they do them, the episodes in order, but at any given time, you're kind of jumping back and forth, you know, between a couple or sometimes three episodes. So yeah, and, and that same process uh, was what we went through for uh, Plot Against America as well. I mean, you were essentially going through the script, you know, script one, script two, script three, but I was producing stuff that might appear in several episodes in the case of the stamp albums and the stamps, um, other things like the newspapers. There were sometimes changes, scheduling changes or whatever. So you'd have to rush and produce a newspaper. But at the same time, you were working on a newspaper that they were going to need in two or three weeks. And the newspapers and the magazines all had um, like the real copy there uh, David Simon was the showrunner for the plot against America and David Simon, uh, did the wire for HBO famously mm-hmm. and Treme and David Simon was, uh, a newspaper man. He worked in the crime desk at the Baltimore sun for 12 years. So, you know, it was partly his input, uh, that made us want to get everything exactly right. And right down to the copy, all of the copy was actual period articles from the day in question. Mm-hmm. And uh, any fictional or what we call hero articles were um, written. They were written by by uh, a couple of the writers on the show, including David Simon. And so we were really making complete newspapers, like full eight-page newspapers with, oh, wow. you know, tons of ads and copy and, and things. And, you know, you, you don't know in advance how these things are going to appear on screen or if they're going to appear on screen. So you always go into it with the assumption that it might appear in a lingering close-up. You know, you you have to. And in some cases in the script, it's it describes the newspaper as being seen in close-up. Um, so you know there's a good chance. But often, you know, some guy will be sitting there and he's talking and he's holding a newspaper and he's sitting, you know, halfway across the room at a table or something. And all of that work just is completely invisible. But mm-hmm. you don't know that going in. So you have to, you know, make sure there's not so much as a comma out of place. Um, you know, it, it's right. it was pro- proofread everything. And, you know, it, it was really intense. Yeah. The actor might suddenly go, I want to flip through the newspaper. That's right. something my character right. will do. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's always, you know, I always say I always make more prop than they ask for because that is a strong possibility. And in fact, I've been on set with an actor who flipped through a book and said, oh, the second half of the book is blank. Like, what if, what if I want to flip through it? And you know, so I, I've seen that in person and, you know, you always have to uh, account for that. A lot of times people will say, oh, you know, we just need it real quick. We don't have a big budget. We just want the hero spread of the book and nothing mm-hmm. else. Everything else can be blank. I never do that. I always put something on the other pages, even if it's just gibberish, just so that they have that option when they're standing there in front of the camera and decide to change something. 
they can change it. And mm-hmm. it happens a lot. Now, how often are you actually on set? Because I know you do most of your work or all of your work at home. So then what determines you going on set or not? Well, I hardly ever go on set. Um, I have, you know, had occasion where they said, you know, bring it in and, you know, whatever. And I usually just, I can't because I'm working on something for the next episode or the next scene or, you know, so I can't ever go and I'll get an assistant to take it in. Um, but there are times when they actually want me on the set. Uh, I was on set for for John Wick for about a week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, occasionally um, it might be just going in to meet the people in the art department, you know, to have a meeting. And sometimes I'll actually be there while they're shooting stuff. And But it's very, very occasional. Like if, mm-hmm. it, if, if I go on set once every two years, that's, that's a lot for me. <laughs> I, I just can't do my job on set. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I need stuff to make things. And if I'm on set, I don't have, I can't haul a printing press into the, <laughs> into the set. <laughs> so what is the general process like for you since you're working at home and you're in Connecticut, correct? That's right. I'm about an hour and a quarter outside of Manhattan. And then are most of your shows then filmed in New York and Jersey, or do you ever have to ship to LA? What's the process there? I do a lot of work for productions in LA um, and a lot for stuff here on the East Coast. I work for productions down in Georgia, Louisiana, all over the country, sometimes occasionally Europe. Um, Yeah, it's just – there was a time – I can remember some guy got my name years ago. He got my name from a colleague and he called me up to work on something and we were talking about it and talking about the production and you know, getting along like a house on fire. And the guy said, well, I'm just about to leave. Uh, why don't I stop by? And he was calling me from Hollywood. Uh-huh. And I said, well, <laughs> uh, you're, of course you're welcome to, but <laughs> it's going to be kind of a, a long drive. And the, that was a deal breaker. He oh, just, wow. yeah, the fact that I wasn't in LA, that was it. You know, mm-hmm. and it, we had spent an hour on the phone talking about the show and the prop and everything was going great. Like we were going to be best friends for life. And then the fact that I wasn't there, I was like, nope, sorry, can't hire you. Oh, wow. um, so there, you do run into that occasionally, but most of the time people don't care. They're, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you can get it there on time. It's like the same thing with, uh, I, I still do a lot of work for magazines and books and that industry, you know, is mostly based in, in New York. And I worked in New York for 10 years. And when I moved out of New York in the mid 90s, um, at that time, it was kind of scary because you didn't know whether people were going to keep working with you, uh, but it didn't change anything at all because it had been the case that they were already hiring illustrators from who didn't live in the city, who lived in other countries, you know, so I, I didn't have any reason to worry because, um, you know, with FedEx, you can pretty much count on getting something, even if you're on a really tight deadline. Uh, you can count on getting it in time. So, you know, and, and back in the day for working for magazines, you would go in, you would go into the office, you would talk to the art director about the project, you'd take the manuscript home, you'd work on a sketch, and then you'd bring the sketch in and show it to the art director and talk about it. And then you'd go do the final art, bring that in, you know. Um, 
And when that started changing, the fax machine really changed that a lot because that cut out the bringing the sketch in process. People realized, God, I've saved so much time if I don't have to talk to these damn illustrators all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know when I'm making a prop, like nowadays, I could take a video of it in progress and send it off to them wherever they are. Be like, yeah. this is this is where I'm going with this. How does it look? I could change it. Right. Yeah. I do that same thing. I'll take photos uh, you know, to, to send them to people, you know, either the director or the prop master, whoever it is, um, just so that they can see it in progress. And it it's also to kind of, you know, calm that worried feeling that yeah. I'm sure they have in the pit of their stomach, like, oh, God, some stranger I don't know is making this incredibly important thing that has to be on set tomorrow. Um, yeah. You know, I, did the guy flake out and go right. to the beach or, you know. <laughs> Is it a real person? Yeah. <laughs> so you send them a video or a photo and say, here it is in progress. And everybody kind of heaves a big sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes that can that can even still be scary because I remember I was production designer for a show and I had a woman build a table for us. And, you know, I never worked with this person before they were an hour away. And I was like, okay, like, I need some pictures. And she would send pictures, but the lighting was so bad that you were like, I think it looks good. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure it's okay. And then I remember picking it up and being like, why? Why? I was like, never again. Oh, God. It's like, now I'm like, I trust no one. Yeah. Yeah. It can be scary. I bet. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, that's got to be the worst when you, oh. you know, on a, on a tight deadline and you get something that's just not up to par or doesn't work or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's just nothing you can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, even though you've been doing films and television for a few decades, uh, it's only recently that you've actually broke into Broadway and theater. How'd that happen? What was that like? <laughs> yeah, I, it's been great. I got a call from Ray Wetmore, who designs, uh, who does a lot of the props for for uh, Broadway productions. After a piece ran on uh, a piece about me ran on uh, CBS this morning, and uh, he saw it and called me and said, "Why have I never heard of your name before?" And I said, "I don't know. I mean, you know, I live an hour away. We should have been working together for ten years now, <laughs> right?" Um, <laughs> So I did for him, the first prop I did was uh, a newspaper for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. And, you know, it's it's the, in many ways the same as working on uh, film or television. It's tight deadlines and not huge budgets. And, you know, he was kind of like, well, you know, it's Broadway. We don't have huge budgets. And I'm like, nobody has huge budgets. Nobody, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the, this kind of stuff, they, they blow all the money on the actors. They don't have anything left over for props. So it's the same all over. Um, So after that initial prop, I went on to work on, uh, you know, four or five shows uh, initially, and then another uh, four or five just in the past uh, few months as well. So mostly things like newspapers. I also did uh, other paperwork for To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the courtroom scene paperwork and, uh, the Bible that they uh, take their oath on, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been great. It's been really fun. It's different in some ways in that, you know, you don't have to worry about things 
being in close up, I still, you know, I, my instincts are still to make everything as close to the real thing as I can. Mm-hmm. But at at some point, I working on a couple of different things, I realized, you know what, it's not that important if it's the actual royal family crest on the front of this tiny little thing that some actor's been going to be walking across the stage with, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. You're just, no one's ever going to see that for more than, yeah. from less than 20 feet away, if that. So th- you do get a little bit of leeway. You know, I always worry still uh, on props for uh, for Broadway productions that the details aren't aren't going to look quite right. But, you know, it's just nice to know that some tiny little thing that's smaller than my little fingernail is not going to really be visible to to people in the first row. Mm-hmm. Right. And have you seen any of the productions with your props? I have not. No, I have not. They don't <laughs> they don't hand out free tickets. Oh, that that right. is true. <laughs> yeah. Although there was that uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, didn't that play in Madison Square Garden in front of like... 18,000 high school students. Yeah. I did a special, uh, uh, special copy of the Bible for that, for that performance. Um, Oh yeah. But yeah, no, I didn't see that one either. Yeah. It was interesting because you were talking earlier about actors in film suddenly deciding they want to flip through the pages and they need the whole thing full. And in theater, if they do that in rehearsal, you have time to like then create the rest of the book. You know, you're kind of, crafting it as you go and you're like actually we do need this prop and then you kind of set it in stone yeah right we we had a period like that on to kill a mockingbird there's a lot of courtroom scenes and there's a courtroom uh, reporter who is you know recording all the testimony and originally they wanted to have someone that there's a special dictation machine that that courtroom reporters used Mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, And that was what they wanted to use. But when they tried it, the thing made an unbelievable racket. (laughs) Oh yeah. You see, uh, you know, we've all seen them on TV shows, you know, the Mm -hmm. courtroom reporter sitting there typing away and you can't hear a sound, but in actual fact, they were loud as heck. And so they're like, okay, that ain't going to work. So what do we do? (laughs) Um, so we had some back and forth and decided on a real groovy looking uh, kind of a clipboard thing. And the, and the person would be taking down everything in shorthand, um, which, you know, in fact, may have been more accurate for a, a, you know, small courtroom in a small city in the South. And at that time, we don't really know. Um, but then there was a whole process with that where this was very early on. I think it was the second thing that I did. And... Um, you know, I have in my shop here, I have a lot of old vintage paper. Like uh, I, I've gone to many an old print shop that's closing down and I'll say, you know, can I look through all the old offcuts and all the paper that you have? And I'll buy up all the old vintage paper and stuff. And it's fantastic to use on, uh, on period props. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I did. Cause that's, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I've got this fantastic light green paper that's got these lines ruled on it. It's like made for this prop. Um, and I had a couple hundred sheets of that and it made this fantastic looking clipboard. And of course, you know, I was missing what should have been blindingly obvious, which is that the actor has to do this night after night after performance after performance. <laughs> 200 sheets were gone before they, you know, in rehearsal. And they're uh-huh. like, 
can we get more of that green paper? And I'm like, oh, ah, no. no, I don't have any. <laughs> and so, and they were in love with that particular green paper, which no one of makes. Of course. And I had to buy green paper from everywhere. Um, <laughs> and they're like, nope, no, we don't like that green. Don't like that green. Don't like that green. And I ended up finding uh, engineers' notebooks. There's a special type of notebook that engineers use that has pale green paper with a graph, graph paper on one side and blank on the other. And it was close enough to the original paper. But of course, a 50-sheet pad cost something like $14. So I had to buy, you know, a jillion pads um, and then trim them down and print the courtroom reporter thing on the on the blank side and you know it just Mm -hmm. it was and i you know i can't really charge them the exorbitant amount that that i had to put out for that special kind of paper because it wasn't their fault it was my fault right (laughs) there's your difference with theater exactly right i don't know why i didn't think that i'm just so caught up in like oh my god this is a beautiful looking prop yeah yeah and in film, you know, there's a certain amount of that. You have to make extra copies of everything. Like usually, almost always, if there's one prop, you know, one document needed, you make at least three copies. Mm-hmm. And then if anything is going to happen to it, if an actor is going to write on it or crumple it up or tear open the envelope or whatever it is, you make uh, at least 30 copies. But I still, you know, did not somehow grasp the fact that 200 sheets of paper was not going to be enough. Right. <laughs> and then if you do a show that's going to go on tour afterwards, you need, yeah. you need like the suppliers so that you could continue yeah. to supply it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had that led to a whole conversation with Ray Wetmore about, you know, basically about this stuff, about the difference between theater and film. And he was telling me about certain Broadway productions where, you know, just for one scene, they'd have to spend a thousand dollars on all of the stuff that got, you know, destroyed in that, in that one particular scene. Oof. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. You know, just night after night after night, um, because, you know, they were, I don't know, smashing up a hotel room. I don't know what the scene was. But, <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, cause I saw, um, one of my favorite shows, Parks and Rec, this is going back to TV. But you made the Pawnee Charter for that. So right. I just wanted to find out about how you how you got into that and what you had to do to create that. Yeah, that um was a fun that was a fun gig. That was one of those things where, you know, you get the script pages describing it, and this this happens quite a bit. There'll be a scene where an actor is reading from a document. It could be a letter or the Pawnee Charter or whatever it is, and they're reading maybe a random line in a you know, complete document. Yeah. Uh, but you have to make up the rest of the copy because when it appears on screen, it's, it's a full document. And, uh, so that was the case with that one where the script has nothing in it for the additional copy. They, they read off, you know, maybe three, four lines of the actual charter, mm-hmm. but, and it's always, you know, it'll say like Article 3, you know, so you have to make up Article 1 and Article 2 and Article 4. And there's nobody there who is going to write it. So I'll always, in that case, say, okay, I'm going to need copy for this, this, and this. And they'll say, you know, do you want me to do it? And they'll they'll usually go, yeah, because there's nobody here that can do it. 
um, you know, the, that's the first step, figuring out what the rest of the copy is. It's got to work, even though no one's reading it and, um, you know, it's not going to necessarily appear in close up, but it's got to be there and it's got to work with the rest of the copy. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was the first step. And, the you know, some ardent fan could presumably freeze frame it and, and try to read the rest of the copy. Right. Um, I, I get emails about stuff like this. Yeah. Post um, it to the parks and rec wiki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's the first step. And it, it's always a little nerve wracking. It's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not the writer on parks and rec, but I have to write something that's not going to embarrass me, you know, <laughs> on the show. And then, you know, the usual, uh, process of figuring out, okay, how is it going to work? Like how big should it be? All of this stuff. None of that's nailed down when you, when you get these assignments, Mm -hmm. uh, there's always a process, a discussion. And a lot of people have to be, you know, part of that. Um, the director, certainly and the prop master and to try to figure out like, okay, is it little tiny, you know, is it a scroll that they unroll and it's eight inches wide or is it giant or whatever? Um, yeah. And I know with comedies, especially there's always the chance to turn a prop into a little gag or a bit. Right. Some actor yeah. will be like, oh, won't it be funny if this was really giant and I had to yeah. struggle with it. Right. And that was the case for, for that. We decided to make it o- a little oversized just to kind of, because it is all about how, you know, they, they're bound by the rules of this charter. So it had to feel kind of big and imposing. <laughs> and then the other thing, and the one of the gags for that was that the letter D, the handwriting, it had an old timey D. So instead of a tea party, it was a Ted party and they had to throw Ted into <laughs> you know yeah so you know i had to uh handwrite all of the articles of um the charter uh and and do it in a way that looked not like it was wrong like i'd written a d instead of an a like it looked it had to look kind of like an a but also kind of like a d but you know (laughs) so i mean it's crazy the amount of background that can go into thinking and researching and designing something that basically some guys waving around on screen for a split second, you know? Right. Right. Um, but if it looks wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the whole thing about movies and television is a, a, a wrong note can just drop you right out of that, you know, suspension of disbelief that you sort of buy into the filmmakers whole world that they're creating. And one really sour note can just drop you right out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hear all the time and, and not necessarily from graphic designers, but I hear the one thing that people mention all the time is the really badly designed magazines, you know, that are clearly made by someone who has never seen a magazine before, you know, <laughs> like weirdly oversized or wide margins or, you know, like newspapers have really narrow columns, but you'll see these newspapers, prop newspapers in productions where the newspaper has really wide columns and there's mm-hmm. half an inch of white space between them and all kinds of stuff that like people see newspapers. You don't have to be a graphic designer to know what a newspaper looks like, yeah. right. you know, so it's not like you have to decide to try to get it right. It just is, you know, your default setting when you do this kind of work. But, um, you know, it it can literally be that important. 
in some cases that a, a wrong prop can kind of wreck the whole vibe. Um, and, and you see it, you know, you do see it. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I'm watching shows, I definitely like am judging the props for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like if I see one that sticks out, I'm like, I shouldn't have noticed that. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the other thing. You shouldn't notice it. Mm-hmm. It should just be seamlessly you know, I, I sometimes have interns working with me and, um, you know, I always try to sort of explain this stuff to them about how, you know, we always make more prop than they ask for and stuff like that. And, you know, that's that's the other thing is you're not – the actor isn't going to lovingly, you know, fondle your prop for 10 minutes while the camera zooms in for a long, <laughs> loving close-up, right. you know. It's it, – you you're part of the storytelling process and everything's working together, you mm-hmm. know? It shouldn't be super flashy. Um, you know, it, it, it should just it, blend. It's just got to blend in, you know? And it's an important part of the storytelling process or the writer and director wouldn't have put it in there. Yeah. Um, but it's not the star. Exactly. You know, either looking too beautiful or looking too ugly and wrong, you know, which which happens. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> yeah, I always I always love when there's some prop that the actors don't realize has been custom made because it just felt like it was absolutely expected and they think it's just the real thing because it belongs. Mm-hmm. Right. They're like, oh, you made it on purpose. Oh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's why it fits. Because yeah. I made it on purpose. <laughs> right. It was planned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's like if I ever have to explain to somebody what my job is, um, they're like, wow, you know, they just sort of think that that stuff just appears, you know, it's mm-hmm. like someone actually designs and makes things like that for a movie and newspapers. Don't they just go to the newsstand and buy a 1940 newspaper? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always, like, you just go buy it. And I'm like, no, yeah. you, you don't actually. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so much is custom made, you know, for various reasons. I mean, products for legal clearance reasons, they can't always use you know, real products. That's why you yes. always see weird brands of cereal on the table and stuff like mm-hmm. that. If you do see real brands, there's also a ton of work that's gone into that with, you know, product placement people and, you know, marketing people for brands and, and all of that, you know, right. real stuff. And yeah. Using real stuff is just as much work sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's so a whole sure. other job. People running around like, what can Stop I get you. into this film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been approached by people who say, you know, um, you know, you work on films, you're working on stuff now. Is there any, you know, are you working on anything that could use our brand? And I'm like, well, why, why the hell are you calling me? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're like wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I can barely get them to hire me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, hire you. Right. Well, we are wrapping up on our time for today. Thank you all for listening. And thank you, Ross, for sitting down with us and chatting. Thank you. Um, Don't worry, guys. Ross will be back next week to chat some more. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Silk Mache. And email us with any questions or ideas. We'd love to hear from you at propspodcast at gmail.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And check out our website at silkflowersandpapermachehearts.com where you can find all of our old episodes. This has been another episode of Silk Flowers and Paper Mache Hearts with your hosts, Eric Hart and Ashley Flowers. We'll see you next time.